Turn to Psalm 19. Psalm chapter 19. Last week we considered the first six verses of Psalm 19, which deal with the subject of natural revelation, or we call it general revelation as well. I quoted the Westminster Confession last week, which said that God has revealed himself in two books, the book of nature, which we saw in the first six verses of Psalm 19, and the book of scripture, which we'll see in the remaining verses. The creation, we said last week, uh, that we can observe is constantly and universally declaring the glory of God. That's what it says in verse 1. It's sending a message about, the, about God. It's saying that he's the creator of all. He's all-powerful. He's divine, Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1 tells us. And it's, important, it's an important revelation. I shouldn't minimize it because it's natural revelation because it's nature saying to us, God made it. God made nature. God made the creation. God made the skies and so on. Don't minimize that. However, as we continue on in verse uh, verse 7 and and following, we're going to see that there's a greater revelation of God, a clearer revelation of God, and that is in the Scriptures, the Word of God. While the heavens are telling us of the glory of God, they do not inform us about the will of God. In order to find that out, we've got to go to the Scriptures. As you read this psalm, you can sense David's excitement about the creation, about nature, how he describes it. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day-to-day is pouring forth speech. Tonight is revealing knowledge. And then he caps it off by talking about the prominence of the sun at the end of those verses through verse 6. How majestic and marvelous uh, is the sun as the creation of God. And the, the nature itself and the heavens have this humbling effect upon David. But his excitement increases as he goes on further and talks about the word of God the revelation of God in Scripture. You can see that as you read in the last several verses. One commentator says, in the second half of the psalm, uh, it surges as the rise and and fall of the waves, for the Scripture inspires the psalmist more than the sun. Now there's an abrupt shifting of gears between verses 6 and 7. If you look in your Bible, you can see that. In my my Bible, there's this uh, larger white space there between verses 6 and 7. Someone wanted to indicate there's a change of gears here. Uh, But the same subject is true. We're talking about the revelation of God. Only this time the focus is on Scripture in verses 7 to 14, not nature. There's a marker of sorts, you could say, between the two, and that that indicates a transition. In verses 1 to 6, the name of God is used once, once in verse 1, and it's the word for creator God, the same word used in Genesis 1-1. In the last seven verses... Uh, it, it uses the word Lord, or Yahweh, as we said last week, which is God's covenant name, used seven times in those verses. And then at the end of the chapter, it ends with the threefold name for God. David says, O Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. Let's read Psalm 19 once again, as we did last week. And it says there, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Tonight I want us to look at four truths concerning the revelation of God in Scripture. First of all, note in verses 7 and 9 that the Scriptures are comprehensive. The Scriptures are comprehensive. Why do I use that word? Well, because I thought it's a very good word to describe the section. By comprehensive, I mean all-inclusive. I mean complete. I mean it covers all the bases concerning the Scriptures. It's wide-ranging, and the Scriptures are just that. They're comprehensive. They're all we need for life and godliness. They're all we need for our spiritual life. The Scriptures are everything to the believer. They are our only source of authority in all matters of faith and practice. We have nowhere else to go but the Scriptures. Yeah, we have plenty of good books out there that we, that we refer to. We love the books, but our final source, our only source, of, uh, I should say, of authority is the Word of God. Now, that does not mean the, the Bible is a complete book on every topic you know, on, under the sun, that it gives complete information about everything you can think of known to mankind. For example, the Bible is not a textbook on history or science, but when it speaks to matters of history or science, it's always accurate in what it says. The Bible does not spell out in detail whom you are to marry or what occupation you should choose or what college you should go to. So don't look in the Bible and say, wow, Lord, I don't know who to marry here. Please show me in your word where it says who. Give me a name or, or something here. It doesn't say that. But it does teach us all that the Lord wants us to know about his purpose, his will. And it is completely and totally sufficient to direct our lives in a way that would please God. They're comprehensive. There are six sentences here in verses 7 and 9 that underscore the comprehensive nature of the Scripture. And I've decided not to break these, script, these uh, sentences down into smaller units um, for the sake of an outline. I don't want to disturb the deliberate poetic effect that, that David is striving for here, and I believe that's what he's doing. Um, so I'm going to leave those sentences as they are, and we'll cover all the six sentences. Now, I would fail homiletics class if I, if I did it this way. I'll, I'll let you know right now. But I think the psalmist would approve of what I'm doing. These six sentences taken together in their entirety are meant to have a certain effect upon us to show us how comprehensive the Scripture is, how sufficient it is. First of all, in verse 7, the law of the Lord, first sentence, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The law, the word law is translated from the famous word Torah that you've heard many times probably. It means instruction or doctrine or teaching. God is, wants us to be taught from his word. Now, David only had the first five books to, uh, of the Bible to guide him, and that was enough for that time in God's progress of revelation. That was what he had back then. That's what God wanted him to have back then. We're very fortunate now in our day and age to have the entire revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. Um, but it says in, in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given, first of all, for what? 
for doctrine, right? It's given for doctrine for teaching. Doctrine is the foundation of everything in a church. We must stand on the firm foundation of doctrine. One of the first things we did when we started this church six years ago, by the grace of God, by his leadership and help, um, was put together a statement of faith, which puts forth our doctrinal statement. And, you know, I, I have many people that have told me uh, they've read our statement online, and they said, well, I read your doctrinal statement online. Nobody reads a doctrinal statement. But the people that come to this church read a doctrinal statement before they get here. And I tell you what, I would not visit a church that did not have a strong doctrinal statement. And so we, stro- we strive to, to put together what we felt was, was a strong doctrinal statement. You know, we all need to be taught the Word of God, every one of us. Nobody ever need, outgrows the need for that. It doesn't matter who you are. All your life, you'll be need, needing to be taught the Word of God. And that's why we do expository or attempt to do expository messages here. I'm always careful to say that statement. People say that they're expository preachers, and then someone says, no, you're not an expository preacher. You don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Missed the boat entirely. So I always say we attempt expository messages here. That method puts the Word of God at the center of the, of, the, of the sermon. And everything is built around the text of Scripture. It's not built around my thoughts or Mike's thoughts or opinions or feelings about how well, something that God laid on his heart, allegedly, but it's the Word of God that's put in the forefront. And, and our goal is to teach the Word of God, right? Verse by verse, as we say. I think it says on the sign still out there. So we can live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. That's what we want to do here. So we have the law of the Lord to teach this doctrine. And it's, and it's perfect, it says in verse 7. It's complete, it's whole, it's wholesome. It is unimpaired, it's sound. It's, it's what we would say, of an, we might say of an individual, he's of sound mind and body. And uh, the scriptures are like that. They're sound, they have integrity. They don't contain anything that's harmful at all. And, and the whole purpose of the scriptures is directed towards the well-being of a person. It's trying to make that person spiritually whole. That's the, that's the goal. We could say that the scriptures are spiritual medicine for our souls because they are perfect. And what does it do? It restores the soul. In other words, it brings, you could say, life, because the word soul uh, has the idea of a person's whole life. It brings back a life that maybe is away from God, maybe is far from God, straight from God, or it imparts newness of life to a person. The Word of God can literally transform a person, and it has again and again throughout history. You, you think of all the many instances, even in your own life, you can see that people maybe you've dealt with, that the Word of God has transformed them. I think of immediately of uh, uh, Augustine or Augustine, whichever name you want to call him. It's one of those guys in history that have two different pronunciations for his name. Luther, another guy, both those men confronted the Scriptures, directly read them, and they were convicted of their sin, and they were converted by the Lord. Scripture had that impression. It, it, it restored their soul. It brought them newness of life. I love First Thessalonians 2.13. Paul said to the Thessalonian believers, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Scriptures perform a great work in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. Now, we would expect Paul to say that, right? He's not just saying that, though. It was proven in the lives of the Thessalonians. When Paul went there to preach, you know what those people were uh, embroiled in? Idolatry. They were legitimate idolaters. That's what they did with their lives. They worshipped false idols. They bowed down before wood and stone. 
And in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says, you turn from idols to serve a living and true God. And so God used his word to bring about the salvation, or salvation in their lives. And he continued to use that word to sanctify them. And so he says, the word of God performs its work in you who believe. It has the power to do that. It has the power to restore a believer who's gotten into sin, to bring him back, to call him back from his sin, to live for God. Spurgeon said, it is, not, it is God's word rather than man's comment on God's word, which is made mighty with souls. It's God's word that is made mighty with souls. That's why it's important in witnessing to give people the actual words of Scripture so they'll hear the Scripture, so they'll hear the, be convicted by the Scripture. Let me ask you a question. Is your life broken some way tonight? Now I look back on the, on the crowd and I don't see anybody that appears to be broken to me, but inwardly you might be. Are you hurting tonight? Do you want to be revived and restored? Then come to the Word of God. Come to the Scriptures and let it do its work in its life because the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Secondly, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple, latter half of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord. The testimony, that word derives from another word meaning witness. It was used to describe the Ten Commandments, which are a witness to the holy character of God. And the Word of God is the Lord's testimony. Think of it that way. The, Lord, the Word of God is the Lord's testimony of different matters. He is testifying of man's sinfulness. The Lord is testifying in His Word of, of God's holiness. He's testifying of, of, of the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. The Bible is God's own witness to his, to his faithfulness throughout the generations. And it's a witness to the utter depravity of mankind, which it points out again and again. You know, human witnesses in a court of law are limited in many ways. Yeah, they take the oath, you know, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. But do they always do that? We know they don't always tell the truth. In fact, Paul says in Romans 3, Let God be true, but every man a liar. But since the word of God is the Lord's own testimony, we know we have a reliable word from God, and one that we can count on. It says the testimony of the Lord is sure. That's translated from the word for amen. We say amen, right? When someone is uh, preaching, maybe. We don't say it too often in this church because we're not allowed to do that, right, Mike? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, our, our circles don't say amen a whole lot, although there's some that do. But I grew up in churches that said amen a whole lot, by the way. There's always a guy in the back saying amen and a lot of other things. But, uh, <laughs> but the word of God, people say amen. Why? To, to affirm the truth, right? Someone says the truth and somebody says amen. That's the truth. And that's what this word is, sure, here. It's from that word amen. God has confirmed his word. It's firm. It's faithful. It's sure. It's dependable. It's above all doubt. And it says nothing in error. That's why we sang the song earlier, and I love this, the truth of those words. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith. Where? In his excellent word, right? That's, where the, that's what the foundation that we stand on. We stand on the word of God in this church, don't we? Everybody knows that. That comes here. It's a, it's a solid, unshakable, strong foundation. It won't crumble. Unmovable foundation. In Matthew 7, the, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And, and what happened? It crumbled, right? It crumbled. But the wise man built his house upon the rock and he survived the storm. The foolish man listened to the word of Christ and heard it, but he did not apply it to his life. The wise man heard the word of Christ and did what he said. And so he was able to have a sure foundation. 
It's the sure word of God. We can base our lives on it. We can put our full weight upon it because the testimonies of the Lord are sure. And they make wise the simple, it says. They make wise the simple. Now, this, the word simple here is a person who is open. It means a person who is open. He's open-minded. He's, in fact, he's open to everything. He's open to anything and everything. In other words, he's naive. He's easily deceived. He's gullible. He is susceptible to being led astray. Now, there are many people who pride themselves on being open-minded. They say, oh, I'm open-minded. I'm an open-minded person. And they declare you know, their intellectual prowess or their street smarts. But the funny thing is they're not open to the gospel, are they? They're not open-minded about that at all. And so they refuse Christ and his word. And guess what's happened? They've already fallen prey to the devil. They themselves are naive to the truth. And they don't think they are. They don't even know they are. You know, Proverbs has much to say about a person who's naive. It says in Proverbs 14, 15, the naive believes everything. Naive person believes everything. Anything and everything coming down the pike, he's you know, ready to accept it. Why? Because he has no guide, right? No standard to go by. He has nothing to go by except his own mind, which is not necessarily thinking straight. Proverbs 1.10 has a warning and admonition for young people. I'm not sure if we have any young people, young people in here. They're all little kids. But it says, my son, if sinners entice thee, don't, don't, don't give in, don't consent to that. And so if they were here, I would tell them to be careful who they hung out with. And don't be naive about it. Listen to your parents. Does a naive person have to remain this way? He doesn't have to remain this way because it says the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. He can go to the scriptures. If he takes hold of the word of God and gets a hold of it, he, he can become a wise person. The Bible can give us decision, uh, wisdom to make right decisions, to guide us in the right path. It can give us wisdom to keep from being deceived. It can give us wisdom to know how to respond in, in, in various situations that we encounter in our life. We're always encountering situations that we need the wisdom of God. So we, we go to the scriptures to find his wisdom because this makes the simple wise. I like the verses in, around Psalm 119, verses 98 to 100, and so in that section. It says in Psalm 119, 98, Your commandments have made, or make me wiser than my enemies. Verse 99, he says, I have more insight than all my teachers. Why? Because your testimonies are my meditation. In verse 100, I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. The Bible says you can be wiser than those who are your enemies, those who are your teachers, those who are even aged. Now, that's not so you can be proud and say, I, I know more than all those people do. It's not what it is at all. In fact, the wisdom of God will humble you before God. But you can have the wisdom of God so you can not continue to be naive and simple-minded like that. Simple is good on the one hand. It's good to be simple on the one hand. We try to be simple in our church on priorities, but on the other hand, we don't want to be naive because we know that Satan's out there trying to entrap believers, right? So the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The third statement in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, precepts are declarations from the Scripture concerning obligations that God has placed upon us. God has placed certain obligations upon us. And these obligations are authoritative because they're from God, and so they're binding upon us. In other words, God expects us to obey them. That word precepts only occurs in the Psalms. The English word may occur elsewhere, but it only occurs in the Psalms. 
Psalm 119.4, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. We should keep them diligently. Sometimes I think we pick and choose from the Bible what we want to obey. Uh, things that are difficult for us or we don't like. We might not care a whole lot for some binding obligation that God has placed upon us, but nevertheless, he expects us to obey his word. That's, what, that's why he's given it to us, and it's for our good. He doesn't say his word is optional. It's not something we can do if we feel like or, or that if, if, we, if we don't want to do it in the t- present time. I'm not talking about a legalistic mindset either here. I'm talking about things in the Bible that are non-negotiable, that God has said, I want you to do these things, or I don't want you to do these things. And that's the correct response, to obey the Lord. After all, these are the precepts of the Lord, so they're binding upon us, as I said. And these precepts are right. They're just, they're straightforward. We might not think they're fair. We might say, those, those aren't, those aren't, that's not fair to us. But we're not talking about what is fair. We're talking about what the Lord's evaluation of his own precepts are, and they are right. They're right because they come from God. And these precepts keeps us, keep us on the road to heaven. They keep us from being uh, distracted and, 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 off the, and going off the road. You know, Satan tries to set up roadblocks for us and, and pitfalls and detours along the way. But the Lord wants us to stay, to stay on track for his right way. As the famous proverb says, there's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. But that's not true of the person following the precepts of the Lord. He's on the right path that God wants him to be on. It reminds me of Psalm 1, we talked about a few weeks ago, where we're warned against taking the counsel of the wicked. We're warned against following the behavior of the wicked so that we become one of them. We're warned against all that. That's the wrong road. The right road is to delight in the law of the Lord. And God's word always, it always, always, always directs believers the right way, doesn't it? What does this word do for us, is these precepts? It says in verse 8 that they rejoice the heart. They cause the heart to rejoice. They gladden the heart. Now, I don't know of anybody who wants to be miserable, do you? I think all of us want to be full of joy. I don't know of anybody in the world that wants to be miserable that chooses to be that way. And a Christian is admonished by Philippians 4 by Paul to be to rejoice in the Lord, right? Always, it says. To rejoice in the Lord always. But how do we go about that? It's not by being a fake and a phony and putting on a fake smile for everybody to think that we're rejoicing in the Lord. The way to do it is to be saturated with the Scriptures. And then you will see the right path to go and your heart will rejoice because you're following the Word of God. Be saturated with the Scriptures. Just as the Word of Christ in Mark 5 set the demon-possessed man free, and put him in his right mind, gave him his right mind back. So uh, God will do for us if we will follow the word of God, if we'll obey the word of God. It will be a cause for rejoicing, the word of God. Well, that's a great thought, isn't it? The word of God, the word of God will give us cause for rejoicing. In Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah the prophet says that he talks about how he was in distress and how he had had a tough time. He was born to be a derision and a uh, to people, and the people would mock him. People even cursed him, he says. People persecuted him because he took a stand for God. And you look at that and you say, wow, that's tough on Jeremiah. But Jeremiah says, but I found something out. I found the source of joy. And what was it, Jeremiah 15, 16? He says, your words, God, your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy 
and the delight of my heart. That's where the joy was found. It was found, yeah, there was circumstances were difficult, very tough for Jeremiah. And yet he did find joy where he found in the word of God. Psalm 119, 11, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart, he says. Psalm 119, 62, uh, 162, I rejoice at your word, the psalmist said, as one that finds great spoil. And so the scripture says the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The fourth sentence to describe the comprehensive nature of scripture. Verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment of the Lord, any, that's anything ordained by God. It's an authoritative order from God, a divine order. What God says is not up for debate. We simply do what he says. Now, my son was in the Air Force for seven or eight years, I think it was. And uh, that meant that uh, he belonged to Uncle Sam. What the government, what the military said, he did. He didn't question it. They gave him orders. He did it. They said, you're going to fly on a mission, training mission to XYZ uh, location. Then he flew there. He didn't question it. If they said, you're going to fly at night, all night, for many hours somewhere, he didn't question that. That was the orders he was given. In fact, he would, he would call me and tell me if he could. He would say, and here's how he would say it. I have received orders to do such and such. And that's how he would always preface his comment. I've received orders to do such and such. Because to him, it was an order that he had to obey. He, I mean, he, not that he dr it was drudge in drudgery about it, but it was an order from, from the commander. And we have orders from God in the scripture to be obeyed. Now, God is not cruel or harsh when he commands, but in fact, the scriptures say his commands are not burdensome, right? Not a burden, not grievous. They're not a burden for us to keep. And furthermore, God empowers us to, to keep his word, his people. And so we have the commandments of the Lord, and they are pure commandments, it says in verse 8. The word means clear. Actually, it's like the light of the sun where there is no darkness. The Lord's commands are not mysterious. They're not puzzling to people. They're very obvious, very plain, very clear. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So he has direction. We have direction as we go through this life. We have the light of Scripture. There's nothing worse than being in a dark place, by the way, where you can't see at all. We, our front porch has got the light burned out at nighttime, and wow, I can't believe how dark it is out there. And he says, we need to get a light. Nobody can see anything out there. But as we walk through life, we have the light of God's word shining our, on our path so we don't trip along the way because it's clear, it's pure. And it enlightens the eyes. It causes the eyes to shine, literally. It enlightens the eyes. It's kind of like daybreak. I spent, as you know, most of my life working a job where I got up very early in the morning, went out before the rising of the sun, very dark, and worked. And I would see the sun coming up. Everything was just dark, 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 and all of a sudden the dawn would come and you, it, everything would begin to brighten up and then it was daytime and you could see everything. And, and that's how the Word of God is. You might be in darkness or confusion in your life over some issue or compounded issues or some situation in life, but then you go to the Word of God and what happens? You receive insight. Receive insight from the Word of God. You receive direction, discernment. Your understanding is enlightened. Your mind is made clear. Your focus is sharpened. And so you're able to understand 
uh, from the principles from God's word, the decisions to make that are in line, that are in line with the word of God. Not the decision that you might think naturally would be the best at the time, but what lines up with the scripture. That doesn't happen for the one who's careless about the word of God. It happens to those who are embracing the scripture, those who are um, standing upon the scripture. So the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then the fifth statement concerning the comprehensive nature of Scripture in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord. Now, you know, you read these statements and you read the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and it strikes you as strange. What, what is that? Why does it say the fear of the Lord? But understand that it is another synonym for Scripture. It means, it's talking about the Scripture, the fear of the Lord. When it says that, after all, the other ones are t- synonyms for the Word of God, the law of the Lord, testimony, precepts, commandment, and so is this. But the Word of God is designed to produce in your life a fear of God. That's what the, the design is, a, a deep reverence and awe for God. Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of, of the living God. We, don't, we treat God so glibly and lightly, lightheartedly, but this is a serious business. I just read the other day in Acts of, uh, the, the church was, was uh, people in the church disciplined because, and killed because they lied to God. I mean, this is a serious business. And so the, the word of God is designed to produce the fear of God in our hearts. People used to talk about this all the time. They'd say, that's a God-fearing man. He's a, she's a God-fearing woman. But that language, have you, have you heard anybody say this language in years now? I haven't heard it. But a commitment to the word of God will make you that kind of man, that kind of woman, that kind of child, one who is fearing, has the fear of God. And the fear of God will lead you to engage in the worship of God, right? It will lead you to engage in his worship as he deserves. That is what the fear of the Lord will do. The fear of the Lord is clean, it says. That is, it contains no impurities. It's not defiled in any way. It is without flaws. It's without error. It's the very essence of purity, the Word of God is. We have very, something very unique and special and precious here in our midst. And this Word of God endures forever. This fear of the Lord endures forever. In other words, it stands forever. There are all things in life are temporary to some degree or another. Fads come and fads go. People born and people die. Movements and dynasties and um, kingdoms and so on. In history, pass away. Even though it looks, it looks good, it looks great, it looks like they're going to be here, but they pass away eventually. But God's word is eternal. It doesn't pass away. I love Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7. Quoted again in 1 Peter. It says, All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Stands forever. The word of God stands the test of time and the test of eternity. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And then finally, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The judgments of the Lord. Those are judicial decisions that set a precedent. We see this in our own day. They set a precedent that become binding law. And here God has given us, in, in his word, verdicts on situations, his verdicts on situations in life that, that, are, that things are to be governed by. They're to be governed by his, his thoughts on these things. They're recorded in his word. God has given us this. 
many, in many ways. He said, here's how you're to respond to a given situation like this. And he gives us his verdict on it. <clears throat> Genesis 18 says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord's the judge of all the earth. And so he administers judgment. He gives righteous judgments out. His, judgments, his right judgments flow from his righteous character, don't they? And these judgments are true, he says. Judgments of the Lord are true. They're self-verifying. Jesus said in John 17, your word is truth. It is ultimate and absolute truth. People say that everything is relative, and there is no absolute truth. But if you think about it, the very statement they make, there is no absolute truth, I insist upon, there is no absolute truth, is a statement of absolute truth. And so even they're wrong about that. But the believer knows that in the word of God, he has a reliable, accurate account of all that God has revealed. So isn't it refreshing to have this truth of God's word in a, in a world filled with lies, in a world filled with deception, and people always trying to con you and deceive you and sell you something that is worthless, to have the word of God that's truthful. These, this, these judgments are righteous altogether. In other words, there's no unrighteousness in the judgments of the Lord. They're righteous altogether. They reflect God's will accurately for his people. And they're an expression of his just person. He's the Lord. He's just. And they, they reflect who he is. So the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And so we see in these six statements in verses 7 and 9 that the scriptures are comprehensive. They're all we need for life and godliness. Totally sufficient for all the believer needs to grow in grace. They instruct in doctrine, as we've said. They testify of the Lord. They're authoritative upon us. They're ordained by God. They instill in us a worshipful response. They're perfect, they're sure, they're right, they're pure, they're clean, they're true. They bring spiritual restoration, they give us wisdom, they produce joy in our hearts. They bring righteousness and they abide forever. Think about that, all together, all those verses together, all those thoughts together. What more could you ask for? What more could you ask for than we have in the scriptures? Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, <clears throat> he memorized a lot of verses. He used to quote 2 Timothy 3.17 from the J.V. Phillips translation. He liked the way it came across. And, and here's the translation out of J.V. Phillips. The scriptures are the comprehensive equipment of the man of God, and they fit him fully for all branches of his work. The scriptures are the comprehensive equipment of the man of God, the woman of God. They fit him fully for all branches of his work. So they, they, they're everything that we need. Spurgeon said, we have a Bible large enough to be a perfect library, which is also so compact that we can carry it around wherever we go. We have all this in, in the scriptures because it's comprehensive. Do you feel as though tonight something is missing from your life? That maybe you're not satisfied with your spiritual life, that something's not right, something's wrong somewhere? You know what the answer to that is? We need to drink deeply from the well of the Scripture. That's the answer. Drink deeply from the well of the Scripture. That's what will satisfy us. That's will, what will strengthen us. That's what will give us the joy that we want, that we desire, and the wisdom we need. So tonight, let me ask you this. Are you reading your Bible? Are you studying your Bible? Again, we come to this subject. Are you obeying your Bible? Are you meditating upon your Bible? Are you depending upon the Lord of the Scripture? Because this is the answer. The scriptures are the comprehensive equipment of the man or the woman of God. 
Secondly, the scriptures are incomparable, verse 10. They are incomparable. With what can you compare the scriptures? All comparisons fall short. What, what can you compare them with? There's two comparisons given here in verse 10. First of all, he says they're more desirable than gold. Let me ask you a question. How great is your desire for the word of God? How great is it? Do you desire it more than anything this world can offer? Is it more valuable to you than gold? Yes, than much fine gold, it says. When he says that, he's speaking of the very best of refined gold. Is it more than even that to you? What would you rather have? You know, people are always talking about investing in gold. I hear it all the time. Invest in gold. It's a good investment, solid investment. I don't, I don't doubt them at all. Can you imagine having a truckload of Swiss gold, some of the finest bars of gold in the world, they say, at your disposal? You have them in your own possession? But let me ask you this. Would that kill your desire for the word? Because you're now into materialism. What would you rather have? Or would you choose rather to live in deep poverty as the Macedonian saints did in 2 Corinthians 8? 2 Corinthians 8 they still they gave. They lived in deep poverty. Would you choose to be in deep poverty and, and yet be saturated with the scriptures so that God could use you? What would you choose? In fact, the Bible is a gold mine, isn't it? It's a gold mine that one can unearth spiritual treasures from. So the Bible is more desirable than gold. And as Mike prayed earlier, it's, or said earlier, it's sweeter also than honey. Uh, in verse 10, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Honey was greatly esteemed in Israel as a very tasty food. People loved the taste of it. What was Canaan called, by the way? You remember that? Canaan was called what? How was it described? As the land of milk and honey, right? And the drippings of the honeycomb were the purest and sweetest part of the honey. Of the honey. That's why it says that there. But David said the word of God is even sweeter than that, which everybody had high esteem for. So don't be overtaken by your desire for wealth or possessions or even the finest things that the world has to offer. Is your desire for the word greater than anything else? That's the question. The scriptures are incomparable. Everything else fails in comparison to the word. Thirdly, the scriptures are rewarding. In verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Reward. By them your servant is warned. We're warned in the scriptures, aren't we? We're warned concerning temptation, warned concerning uh, the consequences of sin. We're warned concerning the judgment of Christ upon the lost. We're warned about those who reject Christ and the gospel. We're warned about many things. <clears throat> and the warnings of Scripture keep us from many a heartache. And that itself is its own reward. He says, in keeping them there is great reward. Jesus said, blessed is he who observes the word of God and keeps it. That's the person that's blessed. He's the one rewarded. There, there was a singer uh, back in the day... Uh, Musician and singer, yeah, I know you know this guy, Billy Joel, who says in one of his songs, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. In other words, he said, the, the saints don't have any fun. The sinners are the ones having all the fun. I'd rather be with those guys. They're, the, they're having a life that we can enjoy. I don't want to be with the saints. They're not going anywhere at all. Their life's miserable. But his perspective was all wrong. It's the believer who lives the life that's rewarding and not the other way around. It's a rewarding, satisfying life to follow and have the word of God. If you take heed to the scriptures, you will be saved from untold misery in this life and you'll be saved from hell in the, in the next life. Why? Because the scriptures are rewarding. And then finally, in verses 12 to 14, the scriptures are convicting. They are convicting. 
A serious contemplation of the scriptures will convict us of our sin. And that will lead to prayer. That will lead to confession of sin. This, is, this part is the application of the scriptures. David, by the way, is not just presenting a great lesson on bibliology here, the doctrine of the Bible. It's not what he's doing. He's applying it to himself now as he, as he starts to ask himself these questions and, and, and look into his heart. He says in verse 12, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Errors are sins done inadvertently. They're unintentional sins. Sin you didn't even discern as sins. You didn't even think about even. And, he, and no one can discern his errors perfectly well. Nobody can. I couldn't list everything I did wrong today that perfectly well. I couldn't do that. No one can do that. That's why we need the Word of God to point out our errors to us. As we read it, we're, it points out our errors to us, convicts us. He says, equip me of hidden faults. He's asking forgiveness from hidden sins, the sins he doesn't even remember he committed, the sins he committed in ignorance, as the law talks about. David is asking forgiveness for even these errors. And in verse 13, he says, Also, not only that, keep me back, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Now he's, he's praying that he will be kept from presumptuous sins, sins that are deliberately committed, sins that are uh, willfully committed against the clear commands of God. God has given us clear obligations, as I said earlier. He's saying there are sins that we commit that are just blatant against God. He says, keep me from these sins. He's concerned about that. Uh, one of the commentators says, presumptuous sins, when repeated, become dominant sins. Presumptuous sins, when repeated, become dominant sins in your life. And David says, David prays that these sins won't rule, won't rule over him because he's well aware of the fact that they have the potential to do so. So he prays that they won't, that won't happen. He wants deliverance from sin. Why? So he can be blameless, he says, and acquitted of the great transgression. He'll be unimpaired from sin, freed from committing great transgression against God. He, want, he doesn't want that in his life. So he prays that that won't happen. He doesn't want to cross the boundary line that God has set up and cross over to forbidden territory. So he prays that it won't happen. Let me ask you this. Do you allow the scriptures to convict you of your sin as you read them, as you think about them? As Mike or somebody preaches, do you allow the word of God to convict you of your sin? Do you confess that sin? And, and, the, and the psalmist here, as he talked about the word of God, he realized this is, what, this is what works in his life to bring this all about. Do you confess your sin do you, like David did? Do you repent of your sin? This is the right way. This is the right way to interact with the word of God. By allowing it to be applied to your life, not leaving it in the, in the book and walking away having more academic knowledge fill your head, but to apply it to your own life. Verse 14, he says, Finally, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A serious contemplation of God's word causes him to pray this way. He wants his words, the words that he says to people throughout the day, and the thoughts that he thinks in his heart to be acceptable to God. He wants those to be thoughts and words that are right. He doesn't want to hurt people with his words unnecessarily by maybe losing his temper, getting out of sorts, telling a lie, uh, being overly critical unnecessarily, destructively critical to people, not encouraging people. He doesn't want that. And he wants his own thoughts to be acceptable to God. The word acceptable is used in is, uh, language that's used in sacrificing an animal on the altar. When they sacrificed an animal according to God's standards and his rules and, and the law, it was acceptable to God. In the same way, the psalmist says, I want my words and my thoughts to be acceptable to you, Lord, as 
if I were offering an animal sacrifice and it was acceptable to you. And he ends by saying, he closes out by saying, Lord, you're my rock, literally my rocky cliff. You're my protector, in other words. You're my redeemer, the one who forgives me of all my sins. You know, verse 14 is a great prayer to pray every day, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great for us to pray this every day? Lord, let the words of my mouth. You know how many times I've prayed this prayer. Why? Because I'm, con- I'm very concerned I'm going to say something to someone that's going to be really not helpful at all. And so I, pray, I try to pray this every day. Lord, let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be acceptable to you. Do you think if we prayed that, that would make a difference in our lives? I think it would. The word of God will increase our awareness of all these things we've talked about tonight. If we'll partake of the word of God. So there you have it. The two books of nature, or two books of God, rather, not two books of nature. There's only one book of nature. The two books of God, nature and scripture. One shows us the glory of God as we look into the sky, we can see his glory. And the other tells us about his will as we think about his word, right? God's revealed himself through these two means. And if you want to know God, then you must meditate on his works and think about the creation that he has made. And you must meditate on his word. So we can think about what he wants out of his people and and we can think about how God is praised and glorified in his word. This is the kind of meditation that will humble us. It will humble us, not make us proud. It will humble us before God and will cause us to glorify him by the way that we live. And this will not just be an academic exercise if we'll do this. Was this an academic exercise for David? I hardly think so. As he's very excited as he talks about the revelation of God throughout this chapter. And then he applies it to his own life. And he says, don't let these sins rule over me, Lord. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. It was not an academic exercise for David. As we do this, if we get into the word of God, our lives will then be in the process of being transformed. And we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll become more and more like Christ as we take hold of the word of God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight. Um, we pray that we would not only be uh, hearers of the word, but doers also. I pray we'd uh, partake of what it says, that we would uh, embrace what you say, Lord, that we will uh, allow it to affect our lives, allow it to direct our lives, allow it to give us the wisdom that we need so desperately from you, allow it to produce the joy in our hearts that we desire so much, allow it to glorify you in all that we do. And we just pray this in Christ's name tonight. Amen.